Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Stilwell, who is a professor of ESL at College of the Sequoias and is a TESOL Certificate Advisory Board member at uh, University of California, Irvine. Very nice to speak to you again, Chris. Yeah, fantastic to talk to you, Chris. Very glad to have this opportunity. Thank you. And how are things in California right now? Uh, things are going pretty well. There's a, a lot of people at home on lockdown, including us. Uh, so we, we're not having any of the summer vacations that we had in mind. We're, we're sticking close to home and catching up on Netflix mostly. And we're learning a lot about, about what it is to teach and learn online. Well, the paper that we're going to be talking about today is the Collaborative Development of Teacher Training Skills, which was a study that you did back in Chiba in Japan uh, in 2008. Could I ask you what first uh, piqued your interest in classroom observation? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, when I finished my master's degree, I was, I was at Teachers College in, in New York, and I was getting excited about making a transition from teaching English to teaching teachers. And I was, I had the opportunity there to teach a practicum. And as part of the practicum, I was observing teachers. And I didn't know the first thing about how to do it, but I, I felt strongly that this was something that could be quite powerful. I had had some experiences myself about being observed in the classroom, some that were, were very effective for me and some that I, I felt were very kind of ineffective for me, actually. And so I, I really kind of got excited about this opportunity to teach the practicum. And I went to people who were experts in it, who had been doing it for their whole career, basically, and asked them, how do you go about visiting the classroom? How do you talk to teachers afterward? How, how do you do all these things in a way that's, that's effective? And it was, it was a real um, great learning experience for me. I hope it was at least somewhat useful for the, for the teachers I was working with at, at the same time. And then um, I got a job in Japan, and I was really thrilled about the job in, in Chiba. Uh, it had a lot of great things about it. The one thing that was missing was that there was no part of the job that would allow me to sort of expand this idea of, of me perhaps becoming a teacher educator. There was nothing about that in the job description at all. You know, it was, it was a really good opportunity for many other things. And I, I just thought, well, let's get out there. Let's see what it's all about. And let's see if we can figure something out once I'm there about continuing this, this exploration of, of what it's like to be a teacher educator. And so when I got out there, I found that I was working with something like 60 teachers from around the world, from New Zealand, Australia, Scotland, Ireland, you name it, everywhere. And we were all gathered together shortly after our master's programs. We had all kind of freshly after our master's programs. And we were encouraged to do professional development. And so with that combination of, of ingredients there, I kept thinking about what, what could we do that would allow us to develop our, ourselves professionally and maybe even expand our own experience of being teacher educators because surely there are other people I'm working with who would like that kind of experience as well. And so I started started working on a, on a program there to try to get everybody working together on classroom observation, peer observation. And while we were doing peer observation to improve our teaching skills, I thought, let's step back and also look at how can we be better observers and, and better maybe mentors to one another. You raise a good point in that it's not just the person being observed, but the person doing the observing that needs to be coached up on good practice. Absolutely. There, there's, a, there's a great quote uh, that I, I, th I think I borrowed for the article that we're talking about, about how most observers don't have any training in how to be an observer. And so they, they kind of 
use themselves as the standard and they observe impressionistically. And so, and, and I think that's a, that's a real risk. And I think that does lead to a lot of problems when people sort of go into a, an observation and, and, and give feedback based on purely on how they would have taught the class and what, what they feel is the correct thing to do based on their personal experiences. Well, that's one of the things that you first note in the paper, that a lot of the literature that's related to peer coaching focuses on the feedback and, as you say, the potential risks that come up if this feedback isn't presented in a way that the teacher being observed expects. That's right. Yeah, there, there, that does seem to be a theme in the literature that it's it's quite risky, especially if we're talking about working with peers. And that, that's that's really the, the key thing here. Working with peers, it's, it's actually quite risky to be giving feedback of any kind is what a lot of people seem to mm. say. Uh, I go on in the paper to argue that, okay, th this is a valid point. We do need to be very careful. But most people uh, who undergo peer observation or who have somebody visit their classroom are expecting some kind of feedback in the end. So then it becomes a question not of do we do it or not, but more of how can we do it in a way that's going to be effective and certainly in a way that does not damage relationships. I'd like to ask because this paper was published in 2008 and I know that this is something that you went on to uh, do further follow-up studies and is something that is uh, part of your job now. What are some of the best ways to recruit teachers for this activity? Because uh, in my experience I've found that sometimes it's difficult to even turn people on to the idea of being watched or to watch each other. That, that's a really good point. I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Um, people refer to teaching as the egg carton profession because it's so easy to remain isolated in our classrooms. Mm. And, you know, on, on the one hand, we can say that that's a negative thing, that we, we have, you know, the solitude. But, you know, it, there's some comfort to it as well. It, it's quite, um, it can be quite uncomfortable having someone come into your classroom and sort of disrupt things for you in, in a way and, and disrupt the balance and the peace that you've, you've gotten and the norms for you. So how do we get teachers to agree to being observed by one another. Well, I think w w what seemed to work in Japan at the school I was, I was at was that we had to submit a portfolio at the end of each year, I believe it was, to get our contract renewed, or perhaps it was at the end of the, the two years. And, and so in that portfolio, we had to demonstrate what we were doing to develop ourselves professionally. And I thought, I think that was a really good thing that, that helped everybody stay focused on how can we always be improving our craft and, and not just sort of resting on our laurels and getting a little bit too comfortable with things. And so because the administration was requiring this as part of our contract renewal, there was that, that built-in uh, interest in finding something to do. And so when, when we started doing this, this peer observation, uh, that, that was answering a need for some of the teachers. So that's one thing that I think could help quite a lot. Um, I guess another thing would be uh, looking, looking at peer observation from different through different lenses. So it doesn't have to be just about uh, how can I how can I watch you and 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 tell you what you're doing wrong and maybe give you some advice about it? Uh, another another great way to look at peer observation would be as something that's that's quite popular in Japan, started in Japan, called lesson study. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the idea there. As far as I understand, is is that teachers get together and they they try to construct more or less a perfect lesson, and it's a lesson that will be used by teachers across the country, as I understand it. And so these teachers are getting together and they're designing the lesson. And, and we, we tried this. This is something else that we tried when, when I was there. Uh, it was maybe four of us the first time. And we got together and we came up with a lesson about how to teach students to learn English through watching their favorite movies. And 
we came up with with a lesson that would be one standalone lesson and i think i taught it and my colleagues sat in the back the three people who were joining me for that sat in the back row and and they they listened in and and then we sat down and we talked about it and when we talked about it after my class was over uh we we were all discussing what was what worked about the lesson and so what what was nice about that is that it took some of the heat off of me even though i was the teacher that had been teaching and ostensibly things that were problems of the lesson were were things that i had done wrong perhaps but that wasn't the nature of the conversation the nature of the conversation was all about you know this is a lesson that the four of us created together and i tried to teach it as faithfully as i could and clearly some things worked well and some things didn't how can we make it better and from that conversation we we came up with revisions to, to the lesson and then another teacher in our group tried the lesson in their class while the rest of us watched it and so it was very cyclical and very focused on the lesson so that that's another way to get teachers interested i think in in pure observation uh would be things like lesson study or things that that break it out of simply being uh kind of judgmental but finding other purposes for it perhaps no i agree and you note that uh if you just ask the question so tell me about your lesson then oftentimes teachers will begin with what they saw as the negative parts of the of the lesson and they and they won't look at it uh, holistically so as an observer or someone who's going to facilitate the post lesson interview or conference uh, what are some good questions to ask the teacher to help them really reflect in a valuable way on what they did in the class well let's see i i recently had a, a good conversation with with a friend of mine Katie Pugel at UC Irvine she she's done observations for quite a long time and she told me that she she hit upon what she thinks is the best way to begin her her post observation conferences which is simply kind of beginning with a smile and saying what went well and and she said that that's a great way to get people kind of comfortable talking about their lesson and and get them away from it as you say that natural inclination to to just start beating yourself up off the bat I think there there can be that said I would say I think there there can be some value to letting the teacher beat themselves up as well because there there's actually some safety in that I'm speaking for myself a lot of times when I'm observed if if I have the an open question to begin with I I go to some lengths actually to focus on things that I was not happy with and and I think I find safety in that because I'm I'm at least sharing with with the other person look I know what i did that needs work and and so i i don't have to lose face by being told these things uh might might be one way to look at it uh and it's it's also a way to get to, for for me to have some control over the conversation of these are some things that i'd like us to talk about uh, but but all teachers are different and, and they have different ways of of responding to to that kind of open-ended beginning um but chris you you ask about how to get teachers looking at it holistically um so i think i think yeah what went well would be a good start but then what comes next is it's important to go with some probing questions right and to to get the teacher talking about some things more deeply and make sure the teacher is taking different different views maybe maybe close up views on on whatever the problems were but stepping back to to broader questions of okay well what were what were your objectives of this lesson and and how do you know that they were met uh and and if you taught this lesson again what would you do differently in relation to the objectives objectives would be a great way to come at a more holistic view i think once they'd gone through the process of being uh being observed being an observer and also being a facilitator a, a third party person to these uh, observation conferences 
did you speak to or have you spoken to teachers after this maybe a month or six months later where they feel that their classroom activities have improved? Ah, uh, that's a that's a tough one. I, I I don't know that I've had exactly that conversation. I, I think the the general feedback has been positive about the experience, and I know for the roughly two years that we did it at at uh, at the school, they uh, there were a number of teachers who signed up repeatedly to do it again. So I so I took that as mm-hmm. as some enthusiasm for it. As far as what they how it impacted their teaching, I mean I can say for me it it impacts my teaching in terms of getting me to think more deeply about how to facilitate discussion. So when I, when I think about how do I talk to a teacher and how, how careful, how, how important it is to, to be mindful of the way you, we phrase questions or the way we, we guide the discussion or the way we perhaps offer suggestions, it makes me think more deeply about how I'm guiding a discussion with, with my language learners and how I can keep a conversation open. Now, naturally as a teacher, there's not the same kind of risk that I, I might give feedback that's going to offend somebody or something like that. It's not, it's not really the same thing. But, but there is an important parallel, I think. If I'm trying to get a conversation going where I want the students to be talking to each other and engaging with one another and not turning to me to have all the answers, then, then these kinds of skills definitely have direct application, I think, of sort of asking the probing questions, maybe paraphrasing a little bit and finding ways to, to take something that someone says and get them to say more about it or perhaps get their peers to say more about it. So those kinds of skills for me, I would say I, I saw a direct, a direct impact. And I can also say uh, I, I was in, I remember being in a session with, with some colleagues where one of my colleagues uh, was very, very careful about telling me that my, my, board, my board work needed some, some work. That, uh, that the way I was writing things in the board didn't seem to have the organization that it should. And I thought that was really fantastic. And I was, I was really impressed that uh, this, this colleague was, first of all, very, very careful and very kind about the way he shared that with me. Mm. And, and something about it, I, I still think about it today, something about it really had a, a nice impact on me uh, about the way he did it. And, and just the fact that it was so useful that no one had ever said a word to me about how I write things on the board. And, and, and I still think about that to this day. And that was, that was, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, that he said that, and I still have him in the back of my mind. So, so I would say that from my personal experience, I can definitely point at things. I don't personally remember exact things that other people have told me about it, though. That's interesting that you bring up board work because the first job that I t- had, the first teaching job that I had, was working at uh, a conversation school in Japan, and that was always the first thing that our observers, who we ha- we had to be observed by someone from the central office twice a year, and the observers would always talk about the board work. That's the first thing that I would, I would always bring up because that's always the, I think that's the first skill that kind of gets forgotten uh, when you right. are being observed. And you brought up the topic of mindfulness, which was something that we talked about with uh, Professor Mark Helgeson when we were looking at the science of happiness. And being right. mindful, being present, and trying to pick up as many of the, the cues that you get in the, in the classroom as possible uh, is an important part of uh, improving your skills as a teacher, I would agree. I wonder whether you think that classroom observations sometimes make the teacher too self-conscious and maybe the, their activities in class aren't as natural as they would be if they weren't being observed. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's definitely uh, something to, to keep in mind. I remember a colleague, w- when I was in Japan, one of my colleagues said that uh, he referred to the lesson that got, gets observed as his 
backflip lesson, the, the <laughs> look what I can do lesson. Right. Um, so so in, in that case, uh, he thought he had the freedom, and I suppose this was nice, he thought he had the freedom to choose whatever lesson he wanted for the observation, and, and therefore he could kind of show off. Um, but it was certainly uh, unnatural. And that's, that's perhaps a best case scenario in some ways. But uh, what you're talking about, Chris, is also, I think, the possibility that teachers might not do their best because they feel so self-conscious, or it simply might not be a good representation of the, the, what, goes on in, what goes on in the classroom typically. Um, so yeah, th those are concerns. Uh, so what, what can we do about that might be, might be a good thing to consider. I, I, I know some people like to uh, switch to using video. I, I don't know, that, that might not do anything that might th make things worse. Um, there's an, another option of making it more frequent. Sometimes when, when these things happen more frequently, when, when we're visited more frequently, we get more comfortable. Um, or, or maybe the, the lesson study approach that I mentioned earlier might be another way to get people more comfortable and more natural in, in these observations. Um, yes, I guess I, 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 I might add one other thing is even if, if the teacher is self-conscious or unnatural, I think we can still acknowledge those things and sort of em embrace the reality of that, but still find something useful in the observations and, and definitely something useful in the conversations that come afterward, especially if it's a pure observation situation like, like what we're talking about for my paper, where, it's, uh, where the teacher is meant to have a lot of uh, influence on how the post-observation conference goes. And so even, even an unnatural class is going to be ripe for discussion material among colleagues, I would think. Well, referring to the paper, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the methodology that you employed. So it was a, a three-teacher cycle. So we have A, B, and C. And the cycle was that A observed B, B observed C, and then C observed A. And they operated as uh, both the person being observed and then as a mentor and then as a third party at different points uh, in the study. I'd like to know, in the 10 years since you published this paper, have you changed your methodology of teacher observations in any way? Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I have not had an opportunity to do this, this version where there are three people involved anymore. And so my, my further um, experience has been one-on-one, -on -one, but I still still carry those, those lessons with me. Uh, and I still try to try to use a lot of the things that I learned from that process. Uh, and I, I would still, I would still encourage others to, to try this as a way of not just, you know, building teachers, uh, skills as teachers, but also as a way of dipping a toe in the water towards becoming teacher educators who are, uh, principled, who have some, some clear ideas about what it is to observe and, and to, to have a, a, a an effective post-observation conference. You mentioned in the paper that the pre-lesson conversation between the observer and the observee uh, is a good place to set parameters of what is being observed and what isn't being observed. Could you give us some idea about uh, what kind of parameters do you think would lower the self-consciousness of the person being observed? What kind of parameters would make them feel like they can be more natural in the classroom and that not everything is being observed and critiqued. Huh, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. So, so what kind of parameters can we set to help the teacher feel more comfortable? Hmm. Uh, so, so some people talk about etiquettes of observation. And when, when they talk about that, they, they say that basically we should have some ground rules. 
of what's going to happen. And these should be agreed upon between the observer and the teacher. And I think that could help a lot. And so one of the principles that, that I've seen that's, that's uh, thought provoking is the idea that the observer is an intruder. And so just, mm -hmm. just by the very nature of setting foot through the door and being in the room somewhere, they are disrupting the lesson. And so that, that's, that's usually, I, I think usually there, there's some merits to that statement. And so that's, that's something to, to address head on in this pre-observation conference, perhaps. And then once, once, we, once we look at that possibility and, and likely reality, then I think we can have a conversation about what can we do to make me less of an intruder. And so some things that might happen would be one, one thing might be that the, the teacher might announce to the students something about the observer coming a, a day in advance. Uh, the, the teacher might announce to the students not to worry themselves because they're not the ones being observed, but it's a teacher who's quote unquote in trouble or, or you know, they can joke around about that. <laughs> but as far as making, as far as making the teacher more comfortable, I mean, the observer could take on some roles as well, I suppose. We, we could consider, you know, should the observer participate in the lesson in any fashion? Should the observer perhaps be a guest speaker for a moment? I'm, I'm kind of brainstorming at the moment, Chris, but, but I do think it's a great question of how do we make the teacher more comfortable and what, what can we do to make them more comfortable? I think sometimes com coming back to that etiquette of observation idea, so that I'm not just throwing ideas out of, out of nowhere here, um, from... From that, I recall that there, there's some ideas that maybe maybe you establish in advance that the, the observer is not going to say anything, is not going to talk to students, is not going to comment on anything. Maybe maybe you agree that the observer is not even going to take notes while they're there. If if the teacher feels uncomfortable, you know, every every time the if if I if I'm somebody who I know I'm going to be distracted every time I see the observer jotting some notes down, then maybe we agree that this one's going to be without notes, please. Um, which would be tough for me as an observer, to be honest with you. But, but mm. you know, this is a good conversation to have in advance. Um, no, it's a great question, Chris. I feel like I, I has, had another idea I was about to say, but I think I just lost it. If, if I get it back, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Um, do you think there would be any merit in bringing the students in directly as part of the observation, sort of a, a post if you're going to tell them beforehand that the teacher is being observed and it's not them that's being observed, so just be natural, do you think there would be any value in maybe a post-lesson survey of the students' opinions of certain aspects? For example, use of the board or movement of the teacher within the classroom or personal contact with the teacher. Do you think that there would be any merit in a post-lesson uh, survey of the students as part of the observation. Absolutely, yeah, and, and I think that's that's something that that does get used in in various places, and and I think that's a great idea. It gives it gives the teacher more feedback, not not just from the observer, but also from the students. It's it kind of triangulates things a bit, mm -hmm. um, and it's 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 important, of course, to get the students' imp, uh, impressions of things as well. Uh, and you're, you're making me, I'm coming back to some other things that, that might make the, uh, this whole thing worthwhile, uh, and perhaps make the teacher more comfortable. I'm, I'm remembering that, uh, when, when I was at Conde University of International Studies, that, that's where, that's where all this was, this, where the study happened, where we were doing this. One thing that we had was we, we had to be observed, uh, for professional evaluation, you know, as part of our contract renewal, we, we had to be observed. And when we were observed, we were, we were told to pick what we wanted to be observed on. And in that case, the school had set up a list. It was something like five pages 
of different things that matched the principles of the program. It was things like self-access learning and how are we promoting self-access learning and how are we promoting communication in the classroom, all these things. And it was, it was a list of, qu of questions of how did the teacher promote self-access learning, for example. And, and the teacher, before the observation, was invited to select, uh, you know, maybe three of those questions. That would be the, the, the main focus of the observation. And a nice thing about that for increasing the teacher's uh, comfort with the observation is that, you know, if, if I know that this one's going to be about self-access, then I'm going to focus on that in my next lesson. And I'm going to really give that some thought and I'm going to try to knock it out of the park. But it's not this huge, unwieldy thing where I feel like everything has to be perfect. I'm, I, I have more focus and, 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 and I have the, the agency, I have, I have the option to choose something that I already feel like I can probably do this. Or if I'm super, super confident already and, and, I, and I really want to learn from this experience, maybe I pick something that I'm not that confident in, but that I, I want to have a good conversation with, with my boss about. Now, <laughs> the, since it's a conversation with my boss, that's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it, th th now we're getting into the conversation of, do we really develop professionally when it's for evaluation or not? And that, that's kind of a different area. Moving on a little bit, but still in the area of uh, professional development, you say that you are on the uh, TESOL Certificate Advisory Board. What does your job entail now? So primarily, I, I teach online certificate courses for TESOL in uh, writing and vocabulary and listening and speaking. And then we also try to figure out how to make the certificate meaningful to, to people who finish it so that when they, when they come out, they are, they are ready to teach. And so one of the big things that, that I've done with, with the board is try to figure out ways that an online certificate program can simulate actual teaching experience. Uh, one, one thing that, that, that troubles me about an online certificate program is the idea that it could be pretty much about book learning and, and, and about writing things up that maybe sound good or at least demonstrate that you've finished the readings or something. But as far as actual teaching practice, that's a, that's a pretty tough nut to crack. And so one thing that I've tried to do in, in my classes is I, I have, I have sim some simulated teaching moments where I have, have teachers, have the participants maybe video themselves giving instructions. One thing that, I, that I've learned from all, all the uh, work with teacher observation is that I think everybody struggles with instructions in one way or another. We can almost always find a way to be just a little bit more clear as we're giving our instructions. So, so that's, that's a, great, um, a great lesson that I've done with, with my participants. Uh, and then I'm campaigning for more of that in the certificate of just getting some, some moments, at least moments, where they're actually having to go through the motions of talking to a class. Even if it's a simulated class, how would you talk to them? And then we watch the video and we give each other feedback on, on that. Not wanting to rehash the old joke of those who can do, those who can't teach, and those who can't teach, teach teachers. What do you Ouch. think? Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just an English one. Um, I, I hadn't heard the third one. <laughs> not uh, saying that that's my opinion at all. What do you think makes a good teacher of teachers? What kind of qualities do you think makes a person who can actually... Uh, give a, a meta view of the activity that the person is going to be hopefully doing for the rest of their career? Well, I, I, think, I think a good teacher of teachers needs to be very good at putting themselves in someone else's shoes. I, th I think that's probably the hardest thing about being a teacher educator, especially if, specifically if we're talking about observing teachers and giving feedback on teaching. 
uh, going back to that quote of, of how uh, most people use themselves as, as the standard and, and give advice from, from that point of view. Uh, it's really important to be able to step back and say, no, there, different teachers have different needs. Um, there, there's a book called Building Teachers Capacity for Success by Hall and Simmerall. And they, they break down teachers into four categories. And I might get this wrong, but I think it was something like maybe the first stage is the unaware stage. And then they, they become more conscious. And in, in the unaware stage, it's, it's a beginning teacher who just doesn't know what, you know, doesn't know what they don't know. They, they, they have no idea what, what they're doing wrong or what they're doing right and, and what to work on. They just need information. They just need to learn more. Uh, and then beyond that, they've, they've got a conscious stage. And this is a teacher who maybe maybe finished the master's program not too long ago. And, and they're, they, they know, you know, the, the correct, quote unquote, correct way of doing things. Uh, but they just can't necessarily do these things, even though they can they can talk about it and they can have a good conversation about it. But they're still too overwhelmed in the classroom, perhaps, or maybe kind of don't have the bandwidth to do so many things. Uh, it's kind of like when you when you're first learning to drive, I think, and you, and you you know when you're first learning to drive, the idea that you're going to manipulate the steering wheel and the gas pedal and the brake and the mirror and get the radio on the station on the on the station that you want, all those things is quite a lot when you're, when you're starting out. And so uh, the conscious stage might be similar to that where you recognize that you're supposed to be doing all these things, but, but how do you do it? It's, you're just not quite at any, anywhere near able to do that kind of thing yet. Uh, the third stage they talk about is an action stage where you, people are more experienced and they, they, have, they have more ability to get some of the basics under control while they're trying to fix some other, other things. Uh, and then the, the, the last stage they talk about is a refinement stage for the more experienced teacher who, who is ready to try new things and, and just kind of look at teaching more as an art than as a science. And so I think a good teacher educator would be someone who, who can look at another teacher and see where they are perhaps in one of those four stages and tailor the way they respond to them accordingly. Another good thing about a teacher educator is understanding that it's not always about telling a teacher what they did wrong and what they need to fix. That's certainly a part of it uh, very frequently, and, and sometimes it's essential. Um, but there are, there are many other things that a teacher can do by showing support, by helping, helping, um, helping new teachers uh, connect with people that, that can help with them with things or connect them to resources, um, by, by maybe challenging them to see things a little bit differently, but um, in, in some indirect ways. But overall, I'd say, I really like this question. It's a fun question. Um, but I think the best thing for a teacher educator is somebody who can you know, step back and look at the teacher and figure out what do they need and how do I interact with this person distinctly from the way I would interact with other teachers, perhaps. Yeah, and I think that that would be a good lesson to take forward for observation, that there are these different stages of teaching. And I think that teachers at all of those stages would benefit from having someone else observe them. I wonder if you think there is a school of thought in EFL that it shouldn't, you shouldn't worry too much about streaming uh, students for proficiency because having students of different proficiency in the classroom can lead to different learning opportunities. For example, the more proficient student might find a way to explain to a less proficient student how to do a task better than the teacher possibly could. And in that way, both the less proficient student learns a new skill and the more proficient student learns a way of teaching it or thinks about it more deeply. 
do you think that there could be value in having teachers at different stages in their career say someone who's a, a newly minted teacher as you say someone who's just qualified from a TESOL someone who is at a slightly later stage and then someone who is at a refinement stage as a kind of team that would be looking for different things in each other and be able to teach and pinpoint different parts of the lessons that they maybe they liked and that the teacher should do more or maybe the teacher can still work on because I think that even if you're at the refinement stage there are still some things that you don't notice that someone else even if they're not as experienced might be able to point out to you absolutely yeah I, I really like this this way of thinking of it I, I would I would say that that's certainly the case uh, and th that was something that that we saw when we were trying this in, in Chiba was sometimes we had teachers who were who were more experienced than others. We even had sometimes teachers who were teaching completely different things. Like like we had uh, sometimes we had Japanese teachers who were using Japanese in the classroom to teach content, mm. uh, but they wanted to learn more about teaching their content through English, and so they they joined uh, to as a as an opportunity to observe some of the English teachers to see what we were doing, and and we had a chance to learn from her as well. Um, I wasn't actually part of that. Actually, I was part of one of those groups, um, and, and I did learn quite a lot. So yes, uh, I would say that that's fantastic. I think coming back to, to my experience in Chiba, we, like I said, we had teachers from, from all over the world, and, and that opportunity to sit together in the same room and, and just talk about teaching for, for an hour and a half or whatever it was, was a really nice thing. And, and, and having it be so concrete that we're talking about things that happen in someone's classroom was, was a great opening for everybody to share different perspectives. And I think even teachers... You know, in, in, in the case that I'm talking about where we had a, a Japanese teacher of content joining language teachers and we were all kind of focusing on language instruction, certainly about instruction, we were all learning from each other and learning different things. And, and we might say that, that perhaps the, the language teachers were more experienced in how to get students to learn language, right? And so even if this, this Japanese teacher mm -hmm. of content wanted to also support language learning, that was not something that she had necessarily studied very much in, in her prior uh, education as a teacher, preparation as a teacher. And so that was something that she could learn. But at the same time, we were learning a great deal about, about what, what is it to be a student in Japan? What is it to be a teacher in Japan? What is this, this teaching context that we're all kind of drop landing into without a whole lot of firsthand, in many cases with no firsthand experience right. of what that's like. And so that was a really great opportunity for, for some of us to go visit that classroom and then have that conversation from a completely different view. Coming back to what you're saying, Chris, about, you know, maybe a teacher who's in the refinement stage and somebody who's in the, the conscious stage, probably, probably not the unaware stage if they're, if they're working at the program. But, you know, having people at a, at a range of, of sort of stages is also fantastic. Yes. And I, I think um, one thing, as you said, Chris, maybe, maybe somebody who came from, from a, a preparation program where they focused on board work a lot might focus on board work a lot. Again, whereas somebody who's in the refinement stage might not even think about it, as, as you said. Mm -hmm. And so, so this, this kind of mix of perspectives can lead to a lot of discoveries. I think that would be a, a, an interesting program to be part of. It. One of the things that I miss about working at the place where I am now is that I don't regularly get observed. The only time that anyone has watched my lessons was uh, someone who was going to, was in the middle of their PhD program and wanted to watch uh, an EMI. So, uh, sorry, an English mediated instruction class. Um, right. And so they wanted to see content being taught in English. And so they contacted me and, and came to observe my classes. But other than that, I don't 
get observed. Whereas, and it was directly related to your presentation that you did at Ritsumeikan APU, if you remember when we first met down in Beppu. Yes. After you came down, you inspired uh, our director of English to do more observations. And so we had a, a fairly robust program of regular observations and, and having a cycle of, uh, you know, a team of people who would uh, watch each other's classes. So thank you for that. Uh, I think it really oh, helped. Good. And uh, I think it's something that's still going on. To change Beautiful. topics slightly, you mentioned in the bio that you sent me that you serve as an English language specialist for the US Department of State. Is that something that you can tell us about? Or is that just a euphemism for spy? <laughs> it's, it's not a euphemism for spy, although I think I was I was taken as a spy in when I had the, my first project. So th this is a great program that the State Department does where uh, people who have a certain level of experience in, in language uh, language instruction and, and teacher education um, can can apply. And basically you, you end up in, in a database, I guess. And, and when there's a project that comes up, people search for certain keywords. And, and if, if, you're, if your CV comes up, then they might call you for an interview and you get a project. And so these are these are shorter projects um, that last, you know, could be, could be three weeks, could be a couple months. Um, and, and they're all, all different. And, and ideally you're finding something that matches your experience. So I, I almost got a second one this summer, I think, but then, uh, coronavirus happened, mm -hmm. but I've also done a couple of, um, American English live sessions with them where it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a webinar, I guess, that is, is focused on some teacher education, but coming back to the the question of was I was I a spy? Um, my my most interesting experience, I guess, with with the program was I was in Egypt and I was setting something up between UC Irvine and Ayn Shams University in Cairo, and it, it was meant to be a, a virtual exchange, a teacher exchange, so that that people in the teacher education program it was a certificate program in Cairo could connect with people in the certificate program that I was teaching in Irvine. And so we were finding ways to set up Skype sessions and we were, we were working out the time difference and we were finding projects that they could work on together and we were troubleshooting all kinds of things. And, and it was, I, I had been there for about a week just getting things ready before we actually started the program. And then on the night before we, we were going to have our first day and, and I'd already gotten people in California on board and everything was all set up. The people at the university decided that, that they were not, uh, that we were not allowed to use the university's intranets to communicate with Americans. And so that was, that was a bummer. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what they were concerned about, but clearly there, there was, there were some trust issues, I guess. And I, I can't speak to, I can't, I can't offer any more detail about that. That wouldn't be pure speculation, but uh, that, that was, that was a bummer. So it simply meant that I had to send a dramatic video home to California to, telling them about the situation and saying, can you guys, adapt and can we can we make this asynchronous and the the teachers in in california were fantastic and they, they were they were on board for that and so we, we just had to come up with a completely different approach to it that made it all asynchronous but uh yeah all, all an adventure and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for for those kinds of opportunities do you think they were suspicious because you spent the whole week just wearing a tuxedo the tuxedo yeah maybe maybe <laughs> and finally in the bio that you sent me, you mentioned that you're working on an ebook called Teacher Observation, What Every ESL Teacher Needs to Know. So uh, as our final point, could you give um, 
Could you give us what you think every teacher should know about teacher observation and why it's a positive thing for their development? Sure. Yeah, I, I think personally, when, when I think of, of the, the ways that I've learned the best as a teacher and what I think is the most powerful way to learn, I, I really think it is from teacher observation. I think um, we learn so much when we sit in the back of someone else's classroom, we just can't help but, but pick up new things from how someone else does things and also think more deeply about what we're doing. We, we see someone do something that's different from what we typically do, and it makes us question our choices. And it leads to a great conversation with that, with that person when we can talk later and say, I noticed that you collect the homework at the beginning, whereas I, I don't typically collect the homework at all. And I'm wondering, can, you, can we talk about, you know, how does that, how does that impact class for you? There, there, are, there are just, you know, infinite examples we could think of where this can lead to these kinds of great conversations. The, this, uh, it can spark self-reflection. Um, John Fansler has written a lot about, about this topic, and he says that seeing someone else teach helps us recognize things in ourselves and, and find variables that, that we, we both want to explore together. Uh, so it's very reflective. I, I also remember uh, when I was starting out in my earliest years of teaching, I, I was in, in New York for a while, and I learned so much in the teacher's room from just talking to people about what they do in the classroom. And that was fantastic. Uh, but it was a completely different level when I got to see them in action sometimes. And I saw that, that you know, assumptions that I, I had not examined and didn't even know exist uh, about how they taught things were, were simply not correct, that they had very different ways of handling things in the classroom from what I was assuming. And, and it was just a, a really powerful way to learn things because these were people I already knew and trusted and, and, and you know, they, they were good friends of mine, but uh, now I was seeing something completely different. So I, I just don't think there's a more powerful way to learn about teaching and to reflect on, on one's own teaching. Well, that's a very positive note to end on. So thank you very much for your time today, Chris, and for sharing your experiences with us. The paper that we've been discussing is the Collaborative Development of Teacher Training Skills. And I wish you all the best in your future works, Chris. Thanks, Chris. This was fantastic. I really enjoyed going down memory lane on this paper and uh, remembering um, how this, this paper re relates to other things I've been doing. And I love the questions that you've asked to, to help me think about some things from some new angles. So thanks very much for your invitation. I've enjoyed it myself. Have a good day. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.